we know now from the neuroscience that actually what happens when we're experiencing nature like that is the prefrontal cortex quiets down and is expending a lot less energy. And so after we've had that experience of nature, even just as brief as 40 seconds, uh, the brain shifts that processing mode. And then when we come back and we have to be you know, much more focused and all that, we have better cognitive capacity. I'm David Kepron, and this is Next Level Experience Design. Designing with nature in mind is not a new concept. It's been part of our architectural heritage for millennia. Humans have always sought to connect to a larger context, to find order and meaning in their transient and ephemeral and sometimes chaotic lives by looking to things outside of ourselves. We've looked at the stars for gods and celestial geometries that when transposed onto earth created city plans. And we've created objects and places that reference the world of the immutable here on earth, namely nature, to give us a common point of connection. From stone carvings and cave paintings that depicted animals and natural landscapes, to organic forms and graphic geometries of the Art Nouveau period, to glass houses that seemed to dissolve the boundaries between inside and outside, to a house that seems to have grown out of the mountainside as if plates of rock had slipped by each other jutting outwards and skywards. A house designed by the great American architect Frank Lloyd Wright that is not best known for its name of its patron, Mr. Kaufman, but by the element of nature that runs through its heart, giving it life. And so we know this house by the name Falling Water. We've tried to capture and resolve the strange contradiction between built environments that we inhabit and the intuitively obvious that we humans simply feel better in natural surroundings. So today I've invited Bill Browning, who is one of the green building and real estate industry's foremost thinkers and strategists on the idea of biophilic design. His expertise has been sought out by organizations as diverse as Fortune 500 companies, leading universities, nonprofit organizations, the U.S. military, and foreign governments. Bill is one of the founders of Terrapin Brightgreen, which is a trusted consulting firm to major corporations and developers, governments, and other organizations seeking to answer the challenges of high-performance design in the 21st century. He also co-authored a book with Katie Ryan called Nature Inside, a Biophilic Design Guide. And I've asked Bill to come talk to us about the idea, that intuitively obvious idea, that we all do feel better somehow when we're connected to nature. People were not made to be living in these huge metropolitan areas, disconnected from the thing from which we have grown. So with that, I welcome Bill Browning. Thanks, David. Happy to be here. So you led, you led with Frank Lloyd Wright, which is a great, great choice. Um, you know, Falling Water is probably the only building that's made me cry. <laughs> it, uh, it, it's a building that you, you spend time in, you, you just, you have an emotional yeah. response yeah. to it at a very profound level. The architectural historian Grant Hildebrand uh, did a really amazing book called The Right Space. And it's analysis of 36 Frank Lloyd Wright houses over the course of his career and looking at, um, in particular, some experiences of nature and some of the spatial patterns, uh, in particular, one we call, uh, that's been called prospect and refuge. So prospects in unimpeded space 
refuge is where my back is protected and I have maybe a canopy overhead. Um, so think, you know, the um, high back booth mm. in a restaurant, right? And it's on a plinth, it's on the edge of, and so you, you're protected and you're sheltered in there, but you have a view of the whole rest of the, of the restaurant. So you have prospect and refuge together. And so these different patterns and these different experiences of nature uh, elicit different responses and uh, help you uh, through your day. You know, it's it's interesting um, talking about this idea of Frank Lloyd Wright and crying. And I have to tell you, it's really strange that you say that because I literally was writing that out and thinking about that particular building. And I don't know for what reason it made me feel the exact same way. I literally was getting choked up thinking about this building. Man, maybe it's because... I like Frank Lloyd Wright. Um, maybe it's because that building is 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 incredibly beautiful, and I just happen to love the design of it anyway. But it is um, at least we share that things. And, and I've only had one other experience, by the way, like that, which is seeing a Charles Rennie Macintosh reconstruction of a tea room uh, in the in MoMA years ago. They did a they had a uh, an exhibit on Charles Rennie Macintosh and they had this recreation. I remember walking in and going, this is absolutely stunning. Now, I also happen to have uh, an interesting passion for Art Nouveau architecture. Now, while he was probably at the back end, I think of that period, you know, all of his design work was still imbued with this idea of natural geometries and, and um, those kinds of things that uh, he drew on from nature. I also, by the way, I mean, I'm probably saying architects that you all know, Alvar Aalto, is another great Finnish architect um, who had the same sort of connection to nature. And I think we have archi as architects have tended to draw on the natural environment for inspiration for a lot of things, right? Yeah, right. So nature will never fail you. Um, and that's a, that's a nice way of thinking about it. Um, you know, there are, you know, you think about, you walk into a great cathedral, right? And what is it? It's a forest. And, you know, it's covered with artwork of flowers and, and plants. And, you know, so you are in the sacred grove. And quite frequently, <laughs> they were not uncommonly built on sites that had been sacred groves. Correct. So, yeah, that's true. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, that you have this amazing experience in religious architecture all over mm -hmm. the world. Uh, the proportional systems are frequently... Uh, those same proportional systems that you see occurring within mm -hmm. nature. Uh, you also see quite typically design that is uh, fractal in uh, nature and has biomorphic forms and lines or patterns that are collinear. And we know from the work of folks like the team of neuroscientists at the Salk Institute that when we see uh, biomorphic forms and collinear patterns, uh, it's easier for the brain to process that, and you see an almost instant drop in stress. Similarly, when we see certain fractals, when those occur, the brain it's easier for the brain to process that, and we have a pleasure response. The, some of the neuroscientists call that fractal fluency. The brain is fluent with that. So think the dappled light under a tree or waves on a beach or flames in a fireplace. You know, those are all examples of statistical fractals. Um, and we're fascinated by them. I mean, let's face it, there's no rational reason why we should stare at a fireplace for hours, but we're just entranced. And um, that's 
all little statistical fractals and movement. It, I love that idea because you're so right about the the fireplace for sure. But also, I and I equally have found the same fascination with walking under trees, the canopy of trees, and the patterns that are shaped on the floor and that they move. And I suppose in a way there is a similarity between the movement of flame and the movement of those patterns of, of shadows or or highlights of light that come through a tree that are equally captivating, uh, which I, I've always found fascinating. Yeah, and that's, um, you know, and you can generate all those mathematically. Uh, and so we're seeing now carpet patterns and uh, designs that are being generated mathematically that replicate those experiences. What is it then about those patterns um, that induce a sense of calming effect? I don't, I don't think I'm just making it up. I, I, I think there is research out there that suggests people who are in places that have this overlay or this consideration of biophilia um, designing with nature, um, that they feel calmer. They feel there's a sense of in, an enhanced sense of well-being and those kinds of things. Can you sort of unpack that a little bit for us? So we know there are lots of different ways of experiencing nature in the built environment. Um, they kind of fall into three broad categories. The first we call nature in the space, which are direct experiences of nature. So having a view to plants and trees and animals, and then non-visual connection to nature. So the sound of waves, right? The sound of leaves rustling, birds singing, um, those elicit strong responses. Um, you know, or touching or smelling, right? Uh, the, accessing the other senses. The variability that we get in daylight, um, thermal variability in a natural environment, mm -hmm. and airflow, and you know, seeing the seasons change. These are all uh, connections to nature that are, are fairly direct. Then the second category are indirect connections to nature, which we call natural analogs. So this would be the use of biomorphic forms or the use of natural materials like wood and stone, or the use of complexity and order, such as the fractals. Uh, so those are representational uh, connections to nature. And then the third category are the spatial conditions themselves, like prospect and refuge that we already mentioned. Uh, and there are a series of others in that. So we've identified over time, sort of based on coming through lots and lots of science, um, these 15 different experiences of nature that can be sort of codified into experiential patterns that designers can then uh, implement to help people have those experiences in, in spaces. And what we see is the outcomes kind of fall into a series of different categories. The first are stress reduction, uh, frequently measured through physiological means, uh, through galvanic skin testing, through heart rate variability, through heart rate, blood pressure, and even saliva cortisol, the stress hormone. The second category is cognitive performance, enhanced cognitive performance. One of the underlying theories in that is what's been called uh, attention restoration theory. This idea that when we're experiencing nature, uh, it's easier for our brain to just sort of float a little bit and uh, take a rest. And so uh, the state is sometimes called soft fascination. And we know now from the neuroscience that actually what happens when we're experiencing nature like that is the prefrontal cortex quiets down and is expending a lot less energy. And so after we've had that experience of nature, 
even just as brief as 40 seconds, uh, the brain shifts that processing mode. And then when we come back and we have to be you know, much more focused and all that, we have better cognitive capacity. Then the third category are just enhancing mood and preference, you know, making us feel better and happier and we like the, like the place better. Um, and we know that of the 15 patterns, not all of them support the, the, all the same outcomes. And so in some ways, as a designer, it's a nice way to be able to filter which pattern I might implement in a space based on the outcome that I need to support for the people who are using that space. Is there cultural specificity to these things? Meaning, uh, do people who live in tropical climates or in the middle of deserts versus people who live in Manhattan, do they ex have different experiences based on where they grew up? I mean, are they more attuned to, you know, Kalahari Bushmen? Are they attuned to more to horizontal planes? And somehow that triggers, you know, physiological, neurophysiological responses that are different than someone who was living in Manhattan, where they're seeing verticals all day long. Do those things matter? So some of what we were looking at are we are trying to find uh, in our patterns universal mm. responses, uh, separate from culture and gender and, and uh, demographic and age. Now, there are subtleties within that, and how you might implement a pattern is, of course, going to be filtered by culture and, and location. Um, but the underlying response, so it's also the reason why we don't have a pattern specifically on color. And people keep asking okay. us that. Uh, because color is so culturally freighted that uh, the interpretation of color is largely dependent on the culture you grew up in, mm -hmm. embedded in. We do see there's some work in a, a field called topophilia that basically says children at a certain age, um, you know, sort of late elementary school, bond with the, with the place where they are. But the underlying theory for biophilia uh, ties back to the savanna hypothesis. It says humans evolved on the savannas of Africa, and that's where we were for a very long time. And so there are certain conditions and experiences that occur there that we then carry with us. Um, and you see that reflected in gardens and parks that's throughout right. the world. Um, you know, you think about the beautiful, the work of Repton and, and others in Capability Brown in, in the UK. You see uh, this in beautiful Japanese gardens as well. And sometimes we'll, we will hear from people, oh, well, that's, you know, you're, uh, you're seeing a Western or Eastern cultural artifact. So we think this is deeper. And one of the pieces of evidence we have for that is uh, friends of ours who do uh, restoration of prairies and oak savannas and the ecosystems of the Midwest, particularly around Chicago and, and that portion of the Midwest. These are ecosystems that co-evolved with the interaction of the people there, the indigenous peoples, basically burning mm -hmm. every fall. And you see it embedded in their language and how they experience that space. So the prairie, you know, the beautiful tall grass prairie with all the different flowers and forbs and grasses, is called the Mishkota which translates directly as the burnt over bear place, which makes sense because the word for fire is mishkot. A savanna, you know, which uh, there frequently are the beautiful, big, muscular burr oaks, the great spreading canopy. And then, you know, this time of year, you get the beautiful floor of uh, trillium and bloom uh, underneath them. That's called the matikwaki. Uh, that's roughly what they would call a forest. 
Uh, it's considered to be a beautiful place. A closed canopy forest, you know, the dark closed canopy forest is the Gutaqua. And the direct translation for that is the scary place. <laughs> okay. Yeah. Right? Deep dark forest. You know, dun, dun, when you dun, think dun, about dun, it. Dun, dun, dun. Yeah, exactly. Uh, exactly. And, you know, that's not a savanna ecosystem. That's, you know, not the forest we evolved in. And so we, you know, have a preference for the savanna ecosystems and, you know, look at our suburban lawns and our parks and our golf courses. Yep. And, right? We create them everywhere. You know, this this funny as you say that, going back to what you were saying about Japanese gardens, um, I'm also a huge fan of Japanese gardens. And I'm thinking about, let's say, the difference between Japanese gardens and, let's say, old English gardens, right? Very different. One is manicured and controlled as if trying to um, to reshape nature. And the other one is like, really let it go and, and see where it goes on its own. Um, as if, you know, you would have walked through this open area, just throwing like, bulbs of flowers left and right willy nilly, um, and it growing on its own. Um, are, are there, but uh, both are equally manicured, both are equally planned. Right. I, so I did, you're going to love this, but I actually did an architectural history thesis oh, great. on this where I compared the gardens uh, and landscape of uh, Hampton mm -hmm. Court in the UK uh, with Katsura in Villa in uh, Kyoto. And both built at the same time, both basically imperial country houses. And one is that taught, rational, you know, ordered nature, heavily maintained. The other is replication of various landscapes in various places around Japan, uh, beautifully rendered. Um, and everything is also equally manicured, but it's equally manicured to evoke different experiences of nature and being embedded in that nature and, and evoke the, the feelings and experiences of being in that place that is being represented, a peninsula into the ocean or a mountainside or, uh, or a small forest, right? Um, so both are, you know, entirely designed and manicured, but they represent sort of two different attitudes about experiencing nature. I'm wondering if there's a, uh, I don't suppose there's a better version of, um, I equally like both, to be honest. Um, although I think I tend more to, uh, gravitate towards the Japanese because there's something about the order and the meticulous care that they take for house stones. And I also happen to love the whole idea of feng shui, but, um, although that's not per se a Japanese tradition, um, in terms of the energy that flows through these spaces, which brings me to this idea of how we feel in spaces. And, and, and you were talking earlier about prospect and refuge, and it's taken me probably a couple of years. Uh, when we met, um, let's say three or four years ago, uh, I came, I used to come home to my house and I happened to sit on a long sloping hill. I have the good fortune to have two and a half acres in my backyard that's mostly green it slopes gently downhill towards a body of water which is a creek um, not very wide when it rains it becomes very wide and floods um, and i'm up high and when i'm standing there looking out over the backyard um, i have my house behind me because i've come out my back door and i'm, I'm on my porch and i i'm 
I, I'm hard pressed to find any place that feels as wonderful and comfortable as that. And then I'm thinking, well, yes, of course, because if you follow the rules of biophilic design, prospect and refuge core to the core to the experience. Am I just again, am I just making this up? Or do you think that as I described this this scenario to you, that it really is those things were at work in making me feel good about being there? So there was a really interesting experiment that's been done independently by a couple different groups. One was by a group called the Art Gorillas, who initially did it somewhat as a joke, um, but it's been replicated now by others. And that is find the, the preferred painting in your culture worldwide. Mm. And it almost always winds up being the same elements. That's fascinating. A prospect view down a hill to water copses of shade trees, um, some sign of human habitation, and um, uh, if possible, calm grazing animals within that landscape as well. I don't have any sheep. I've and, got, I, however, I do have groundhogs <laughs> and deer and rabbits and squirrels. And there you go. So I, <laughs> they, they go. traipse through my backyard and dig and dig stuff up. But, but anyway. Exactly. So that's it. And, um, and it's funny because the one variable that they found in the, in the experiment was that um, if there's some famous person from your culture who's identifiable in the painting as well. So, mm. you know, oh, there's George Washington. Oh, there's Lao Tzu, right? <laughs> but, uh, um, you know, the, the, the overall semantic elements, the components of the, what you are seeing, um, turn out to be the same all over the world. So as you say that, now I'm thinking, well, I don't really have anyone that's famous. But then I think, no, actually, I've got these Buddha statues um, all over my balcony, right? These three or four little Buddha, you know, uh, stone Buddha things. And so maybe that, maybe I've ticked off all the boxes here, actually, unwittingly, <laughs> unwittingly <laughs> knowing. And I have to tell you, you know, pandemic has been uh, both challenging and wonderful at the same time, because now everyone um, in my family is saying, well, we never want to leave here. I mean, literally and figuratively, you know, they don't want to, but uh, it has been really, it really has in the context of, of this pandemic been a place of refuge, you know, where um, we are, we, f we have that sense of comfort and being sequestered. It is interesting. Also, you were talking about architects. I remember learning early on about Mies van der Rohe and him doing the Farnsworth house, which is the glass house to which I was referring in the intro. And this idea that he used to like to put his beds not up against a wall, um, but they sort of sat out there a little bit in open space. And that was a very disconcerting feeling for a lot of people, because I suspect that that idea of proximity to that you know, that backdrop, that that sort of where your back is into the cave looking outwards um, has some sense of also inducing comfort, though not necessarily. I, I hate hotel rooms where where there is a pony wall and, and you open the door, there's a pony wall and the and the head of the bed is behind the pony wall. Right. And so, yeah, that's so disconcerting. Right. Um you know, in the in the work in anesthesia, where you know how you perceive temperature and airflow on different parts of the body, right? So a cool breeze in the face is really calming, and, and you you really like mm -hmm. that. But if you really want to flip someone out, blow some warm air on the back of their neck, and you will have them panicking pretty quickly. You see now, so here, here's a couple of challenges. One, I remember my, my son, oh boy, he's probably about six years old, and he used to stick his head out the window of the car. And I swear to God, he, he literally did that one day and he goes, wow, I now really understand why dogs like this. 
which I thought was was <laughs> which was beautiful, which was great. But then I don't know. I think that whole idea of someone breathing on the back of your neck sort of has that weird sexy feel to it as well. So I don't know. Maybe maybe that that doesn't match my life experience. But um, anyway, we digress. <laughs> it wasn't the lion about to eat you. <laughs> but it's so true. And I think when we talk about this idea of neuroscience and what I'm really fascinated in is this idea of pattern recognition, right? That we have to understand that our brain at a fundamental level is a pattern recognizing machine. And, and its job effectively is to see um, interruptions within well-constructed patterns, which become um, identifiable as being the thing that seems to be out of place and the dopamine systems connected into that world. And when you relearn patterns, um, dopamine production is, is enhanced and things like that. But I'm also curious then that if that is true, is it because these patterns are built into us from a few million years of human evolution that we see these patterns and that because there's a familiarity with them that we seem to find comfort in them as well? Well, you think about prospect and refuge. Um, the the terms and the first definition actually comes from the work of the landscape geographer Jay Appleton in the UK. Mm. And he asked this question, you're standing on a hillside, and I look one direction, and I see this view, and I go, wow, that's beautiful, and a distant view, and I'm sitting against the tree, and I, and I turn 90 degrees, and I go, oh, not so much, right? And so he starts to pick apart the, the elements that make up that view of the spatial experience and why are we responding to that? You know, some of the other uh, experiences, uh, one of our other patterns is mystery or enticement. Mm -hmm. So I just want to see what's around that corner, right? You know, you think about the, in an old medieval town where the, the road is, the street is curving and you just got to go see what's around that corner. But even if you're out in, walking in the forest with kids or a dog, they'll bolt and you got to go running after them because they're uh, neuroscientists say you feel compelled to go see what's around that corner. Mm -hmm. Now, mystery can also be, wow, where's that music coming from, right? Or where's that water? Or, um, ooh, I smell cookies. Where are the cookies, right? You're compelled to go explore your environment, uh, which quite frankly, has survival characteristics, right? If you don't feel compared to go, you're gonna, not going to find the other food. So, And then risk peril. That's a fun pattern. Uh, it's one Wright uses. Um, you see it, you, know, you go to the top of the Guggenheim and that spiraling ramp and you get up to the top and you look over the edge and it's pretty exhilarating. The railing there is just slightly low enough to make you feel uncomfortable. You're not going to fall but it makes the experience even more exhilarating, you know, or get out on those cantilevered uh, balconies on falling water out over the waterfall. Mm -hmm. And it's pretty exciting. You're not going to fall, but it's pretty exhilarating out there. Um, so that's a pattern right use quite a bit. We originally had 14 patterns for many years. Our, our work and research on developing patterns was supported by Google. Uh, in the process of developing a set of biophilic design guidelines for their uh, buildings and campuses worldwide. And they have a culture of if you don't have the science, you can't have the conversation. And so there was another pattern we wanted to add, but quite frankly, we didn't have the science. And um, we finally, in the last two years, were able to gather enough that we defined a new pattern and added it into our book. And so let me describe the experience and let me see if you can 
come up with words. Oh, I love these quizzes. This is going to be good. Okay, I'm ready. Okay. <clears throat> should I should I overdub this with um uh, uh Jeopardy <laughs> Jeopardy music? To... You know, doo, doo, there you doo, go. Doo, doo. So I'll give you two examples. Okay, I'm ready. Uh, go. You walk up to the. Uh, you've been walking through the pygmy forest of uh, pinion and junipers. You know, the low forest and. Uh, there's uh, the sandy soil and the rocks and the some cactus and and you come around a corner and then all of a sudden you're at the edge of the Grand Canyon and you stop and your mouth drops open and your eyes get wide. That's number one. Number two. And number two can be you come through the portal and you come in under the narthex and you come into the main nave of uh, Rouen or Chartres or Notre Dame. Mm -hmm. Or you come through the entrance in uh, Nara and you come in under the wood structure and you step into the space and there is the great Buddha that is you know, towering over you with eyes the size of houses. And you stop and your mouth drops open and your eyes go wide your heart rate changes. Um, the brain response is really distinct. It's actually an overloading of several different centers of the brain. It all rushes forward and the prefrontal cortex flashes at once. And that's when you stop and your heart rate changes and your blood pressure changes and your breath changes. And then you also exhibit a psychological shift, which is you tend to be humbled and you tend to exhibit more charitable and pro-social behavior after having that experience of i know what it is <laughs> it feels like we need steve harvey right here you know <laughs> name five things well for, first of all let me preface my answer by saying you describe scenarios of what I'm going to say changes of scale, but that's not my answer. Um, and and what I love about that as a design tool of that compression and expansion of space, like I love the idea, and you have used it often, right? Coming into the entryway, compressed, and then entering into a larger space. So there's a sense of, uh, a, a, and there's a perceptible change that you feel by the lowering of a ceiling plane. How that is is more comfortable and um, connects you to a very human scale experience where if you describe walking into the cathedrals, you walk into the cathedral. And that's that's not a human scale experience. That's that's precisely made to induce the sense of awe, which is my answer. Correct. Right? It is that and then, ding, ding, ding. that's it. And I win. <laughs> this is like the twenty-five thousand dollar pyramid. I win, you know. Uh, but but that is it. And I think there's some amazing, and I've I've stood at the edge of the Grand Canyon. I've I've been there and and seeing the grand tetons you know in sedona and being out to you know places where these these geological structures are magnificent because of their scale for starters but they are awe inspiring mainly because i i think you're drawn to this idea and, and you, please add to this but here's my thought i think you get an appreciation for a how long these these structures have been around for and how long you have not been around for or in the sort of breadth of human experience or human existence um that they've been there forever worn away by time uh, and there's something that's magnificent and, and majestic about those places um that is that is awe-inspiring uh because it gives yeah. you a sense it's it, this you know, 
I see, I can't even speak. <laughs> I can't even, I can't make words. I'm thinking of standing in the Grand Canyon um, and, and having right. that experience. But awe, it is awe. But it's not just a spatial experience, right? Okay. Um, although it can be a small spatial experience as well. So, um, you know, Wright, uh, Hildebrand points out that Wright was probably doing this intuitively because he writes prolifically. And it's amazing how much this guy cranked out. Um, but he never talks about spatial experiences, but for compression and release. Mm. And one of my favorite examples is actually here in the DC area, and that is um, the Pope Lely House, uh, which was a tiny Usonian house. And there's a port crochet out front that is barely eight feet high, if that. You can reach up and touch it, and you step in, you come in under that outside, and then you go into the foyer of the house and you have hallway to the left of the bedrooms that's narrow and low. And you have the hallway that extends past the office down several stairs to the dining room and then the living room. And you have then the ceiling plane of the living room is cantilevered off of the fireplace. And so there's a clara story all the way around it. So that ceiling plane is actually floating on light. Mm. all around you. And so there is an experience of awe, but in a, a much smaller scale. We can also get the experience of awe with music, right? Mm -hmm. And mm -hmm. a great piece of artwork can induce that as well. Um, it's a really, but um, initially we thought it was a combination of different experiences, uh, patterns put together we now know that it's actually a, a very distinct brain response and physiological response that's different from all the other spatial experiences. That really is fascinating to me. And I was going to say, so what is it? Is it a, neuro, is it a neurobiological response to the things? And, and have you been able to do research that identifies what those component elements are that induces a sense of awe? Not necessarily. Um, but Florence Williams, is, uh, who wrote The Nature Fix, a really great nature writer, uh, is working on a new book. I may be spelling the beans, but she's been for the last year and a half working on a book on the experience of awe. Interesting. And uh, and I can't wait to see a draft of it. Yeah. So one of my other favorite spaces, which is also a right space, is the great workroom at Johnson Wax, mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Uh, which is this forest of columns that some people call lily pads, but it's, you know, they're basically savanna trees out in a big savanna. And so this is a, a two-story high space uh, with a translucent glass ceiling that's all supported by these uh, thin round columns that open up into a disc on the top, basically like trees in a savanna. Mm -hmm. And it's an extraordinary space. You come into the building on a sort of long, uh, low sequence. So he's doing compression there. You have a water feature on the side and you get the sound of the water, which is great. Uh, we can go in the whole psychoacoustics of water and why we find that so appealing. But we go past that and we come further into the building and we don't go directly into the great workroom. There's a brick elevator core that sort of like the ghost wall in a, in a old Chinese palace. You then go around that and come out from underneath the balcony and you come into the great workroom. And so amazing experience of compression and release. But then you have this extraordinary space. One of the things for me that says 
this is sustainable architecture is the space is more than 80 years old and it's still used in its original configuration and people still love working and being in that space. It's just absolutely extraordinary. Name another office building where, <laughs> where the workspace is still in its original configuration more than seven, six, seven years after it was done, right? Uh, let alone 80 plus. So yeah, that, it's quite an extraordinary experience. It does bring up, you know, as you ask that question, uh, one that I've spoken about recently was my visit to Amazon Spheres, you know, and and what um, Amazon has done with that building. Now, uh, off the street, you can enter into a, I guess, what would be qualified as, I guess, an exhibit space. It talks about the building and what they've done there, and they have these these digital podiums or uh, uh, totems rather that that play digital content to them. Um, you can't, I don't think, get into the spheres. I didn't get in. I didn't have any connection to get into them. Uh, but I've been in biodomes before, so I know the sense of being in a biodome and, and what it feels like to be in that sort of humid place where the every breath is 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 warm and calming. There is very clearly a, a different feeling that you have being in there. But I, I wanted to ask you the question about the connection between what you might experience at Amazon spheres from the street level as a you know, typical, you know, um, person from the general public who goes in and sees these digital representations of uh, biophilic elements and whether or not they have the same impact at a neurobiological level as the real thing does. Can I get great visuals, you know, of immersive digital experiences that are from nature and have the same impact as actually being in nature? Are they at a brain level? Are they the same thing? Let me give back it up a little bit and give sort of a sequence of the science to, to hopefully maybe help answer that and where, where it's going now. So one of the first pieces of science related to biophilia is the work of Roger Ulrich looking at people recovering from one specific surgery in a hospital that um, had a ward for this, uh, these patients. And half of the beds had a view out to a brick wall and the other half of the view, beds had a view to some trees. And they, hundreds of patients went through here, but they then narrowed it down to demographically match the patients and even the paint color of the room. So the remaining variable was what was the view from their bread. And the patients who saw the view to the brick wall took almost one day longer to recover and took more painkillers and had more nursing calls than the patients who had the view to the trees. And so this helps sort of induce and launch the whole healing gardens movement. Ulrich then with a team in, in Scandinavia then did experiments with cardiac patients where they showed them either a blank sheet of paper or a, a scene of nature, just a picture of nature, before or after surgery and found that blood pressure was lower, heart rate was lower, uh, and recovery time was improved. Both great responses. So this leads um, Peter Kahn and his team at, oh, I should also say, they also did one variant on the experiment where they also used a piece of highly abstract art. And that experiment didn't go very far because they found that frequently that induced a fear response and they were getting a spike in blood pressure and heart rate, which is probably not a good thing to do to a cardiac So patient. no Kandinsky, no Miro, no Jackson Pollock, any of those greats. <laughs> right. Let's keep them out of the equation. Okay. So they 
Um, so this leads Peter Kahn at the University of Washington to ask this question of, is fake nature enough? So, because they had done some stuff with artificial windows and basements and, and saw that that lowered blood pressure and heart mm. rate. And so they did an experiment where they gave people a stressor and the recovery was one of three conditions, staring at a wall of gray curtains or some of those curtains open and a view out a window to a fountain and flowers and trees on the University of Washington campus, or um, some of the curtains open and a flat screen television, high definition television, same dimensions as the window, same aspect as a window and broadcast live on that was the view out the window. Staring at the curtains wasn't necessarily all that helpful. The psychological response to the real view and the simulated view was pretty much the same, very positive. The physiological response was a little different. Seeing the view on the flat screen television lowered blood pressure and heart rate, but not as much as the real view. Uh, and that may have to do with the way that we process uh, visual information in 2D versus 3D, a uh, different set of stimulus. So we know that simulated nature, even just a painting or a photograph of nature is helpful. And in fact, if we stare at that photograph for 40 seconds, we can induce uh, attention restoration, the, the quieting of the prefrontal cortex. So there's an experiment that actually is more than experiments, an set of installations that were done by Amir L. Philip uh, with Studio Elsewhere during the pandemic at um, Mount Sinai Hospital in, in New York and, and other locations now, where they set up a break space for uh, staff dealing with uh, COVID patients. And it's a 15 minute immersive experience of a video of nature and you're sitting in a space uh, with plants and, and some natural materials and you know, a refuge chair, and they monitored, you know, what happened to the stress levels of those nurses and doctors and, and hotels and hospital staff that were able to use that break space and found, you know, definitely a very good recovery characteristic out of that. I'm wondering, we had um, Mariana Figueroa, uh, from Mount Sinai, and she was talking about the idea of lighting and how lighting is, was supporting better sense of wellness or sleep patterns in people with dementia. She was talking about how there are critical factors in terms of how spaces are lit to uh, support a sense of uh, better health. I imagine it's the same thing with introducing biophilic elements into spaces as well, right? And, right. and so yep. when you talk about the hospital scenario, again, you know, we've spoken a lot about Frank Lloyd Wright here. Uh, and I use a typical thing in doing thesis reviews at FIT with the interior design students there who talk about doing biophilic design, you know, focused projects. And of course, you see the requisite hanging plant in their rendering, you know, over the door on the shelf, and they figure they've checked the box. And Frank Lloyd Wright had a great um, quote or was quoted to as saying, you know, doctors bury their mistakes and architects just grow vines. And I thought that's like so beautiful, right? So when you're talking, it's easy for me to conceptualize light and how to change light quality in the room, light quality over day part. When I'm talking about introducing biophilic elements into design, it's not just about putting plants in rooms or hanging requisite vines, right? So what are some of those things that we can use in the creation of places uh, that can support better health and well-being that, you know, like off the top of your head, you talked about prospect and refuge um, and, and other patterns. What are some of the other patterns that we can introduce uh, into places that 
that make people simply feel better or that seem to, based on research, make people feel better? So we did an experiment uh, with uh, architect in Baltimore, Jim Detterman, partnership with uh, Connell Davis Golden Architects and Cope uh, Horde Mock. And um, with uh, Morgan State University and the neuroscience team at Salk. And it was an experiment in a sixth grade mathematics classroom in a STEM academy in the inner city of Baltimore, uh, the Green Street Academy. Now, the building was built in 1925, and Jim and his team had already renovated the building to be a lead platinum building. Mm -hmm. uh, so great environmental performance. We were working with a sixth grade mathematics classroom on the east facade of the building. And our control classroom was a seventh grade mathematics classroom a few doors down on the same facade and the same floor. And we wanted to do minimal interventions. And so landscape company added to a garden that was already outside. Uh, but the main interventions were, you know, what low cost things to do in the room. So the first thing was uh, removing uh, all the posters from the walls. And that was really tough because this, the teachers uh, are actually evaluated by how much content they put on the walls. And what we've learned from neuroscientists is that's actually counterproductive. Um, it's overstimulating. We put down carpet tiles that had a pattern like waving grass, so collinear biomorphic form on the floor. Around the top of the classroom, a wallpaper freeze uh, designed by a uh, partnership of the folks at Salk, the neuroscientists working with artists at uh, Design Text, and it's an abstraction of palm leaves. Mm. So now you have collinear patterns in a biomorphic form. Then some waveform ceiling tiles, a few of those, and then replacing Venetian blinds, which tended to be closed all the time because of the glare in the morning, and they tended not to open them over the course of the day. They, many of the classrooms, they're closed the entire school year, which is unfortunate because you've got a garden, you've got fields outside. Replacing those with uh, fabric mecco shades that had the shadow patterns of tree branches silk screened right. onto them. So producing a statistical fractal. And so we did a whole series of different measurements. Uh, one was um, survey work. Yeah. How did people feel about the space? So surveys of all the students who use the spaces uh, and also video interviews. And in the biophilic classroom, the word that comes through most frequently, both from the students and the teachers, they feel calmer in that space. Mm -hmm. We see that play out in two other ways. Uh, one is the school system uses the iReady test, which is an online uh, academic test. It's done several times a year. And so we plotted the experience, the test scores of the students in that classroom over the course of the academic year and compared that with the, the same classroom with the same teacher and the same curriculum uh, the prior year and found better test performance over the course of the year uh, in the biophilic classroom than prior years. And so it's comparing 125 students to 122 students. We then also did four months of biometric testing. We would have liked to add a whole year, but <laughs> getting permission to do biometric testing uh, on sixth graders in a public school is challenging. 
Uh, and so what we did was um, we had one class uh, in the sixth grade classroom and one class in the seventh grade classroom at the same period uh, each day uh, and three times a week, Monday, Wednesday, Friday. Uh, at the beginning of the class, the students would put their finger in a little sensor that measures heart rate variability. And 90 minutes later, at the end of class, they would do that again. And each uh, student had their own monitor and their own, um, we gave them a smartphone with the app on it to record that. And what we found was heart rate variability is one of those numbers where you, you actually want the number to go mm -hmm. up because it's an indicator of stress recovery characteristics. And in the seventh grade classroom, the number is fairly fixed and doesn't really vary, change, change that much from beginning of class to end of class. But in the biophilic classroom, we see a dramatic improvement uh, and change in that number from the beginning of class and the end mm -hmm. of class. It gets mm -hmm. better over the 90 minutes that kids are sitting in that, in that room, being in that room. And so all of those are pieces of evidence related to basically two patterns, right? We're using biomorphic forms and we're using complexity and order through the, the fractals. Those are the two main things. Now, the enhanced garden, I thought, initially would play a really big role in this. And when we look at the data set, particularly the data set of the heart rate variability, is we see a spike in the data in April. And what happened in April? Well, prior to April, um, the trees didn't have any leaves on them. And then in April, the trees bloomed. So we see the spike, and then in May, after the after they're done blooming and it, and it's back to leaves, we're back to the the original, still a positive trend, um, that. And so that also helps tell us that the changes that we see over the course of the classroom are predominantly due to the experience in the classroom and not not what was going on outside. I actually spoke with um, Jim uh, Ditterman uh, at uh, Greenbuild last year with your colleague, uh, Katie Ryan as well. And the subject really was selling biophilic design, right? How do you, how do you actually sell it into yeah. projects? And one of the fascinating things that I thought Ditterman came up with was, uh, stop talking about ROI on this investment, right? Cause if you're going to, if you're going to get, you're never going to get off that for most development folks, you're never going to say, well, you know, how do I know it's going to, you know, give me a return on investment. He says, you know, what you have to do is shift to return on GPA. And I, I loved that idea that if he could convince you or, or demonstrate to you because they've done the, the, the studies that GPA increase would be the outcome of a room or an environment that was infused with biophilic design principles, then wouldn't you as a university want to have students who were performing at the uppermost level of the GPA spectrum? And wouldn't that be a great marketing tool for you saying that our university pushes you at the top of your GPA score, you know, 4.0 GPAs for everybody, and therefore gets your students into better jobs, gets them into higher salary brackets, get them. And I thought, yeah, that just seems like a, a, a really good way to talk about this because we get stuck on the idea of, okay, I think it's easy for most people to say, yeah, I get it. The, uh, this idea of biophilic design principles, designing with nature, sustainable design practices, all those things together. Um, we generally feel better in those environments, right? Helps us with the sick building syndrome that we've created over the past 50 years of building practice. But, so we, but, uh, okay, you go ahead. Yeah. We have a, so we, uh, we have a publication called, um, 
the economics of Autophilia, yes. where we're running all those sorts of numbers, but you can also play it out experientially. So we did an observational study of six hotel lobbies in Manhattan. And three of them were conventional and three of them were designed with biophilic measures. And what we were interested in was, did it change the way people use yeah. the lobbies? And in conventional lobbies, 75% of the people are just transitory, in and out, transactional, moving through the space, right? And lobbies, you spend a lot of money on, and lobbies are big sure. spaces in a lot of hotels. So in the biophilic uh, lobbies, we saw a 36% increase in the number of users that were either active or passive users mm -hmm. in that space. Now, if I have a, a cafe or a bar in that space, the fact that people are going to hang out and more people are going to hang out and spend time in my lobby is going to increase my revenue, right? right? right. It's... Um, but we took it a step further and we said, you know, these hotels had biophilic design features, not just in the lobby, but elsewhere in the hotels. And did it uh, come through in the way that people um, reviewed the hotels? Mm -hmm. And so we did a keyword search of the websites of uh, top 10 words in the descriptors of the websites of those hotels themselves. And design and decor is, is the number one. Experience is really high um service and maintenance and a bunch of other things come in through that um and in conventional hotels the number one response is service and maintenance right and you get a response on design and decor um and some response on experience on the biophilic hotels design and decor was number one and you get a strong response on service and maintenance, which is no surprise. Um, and you get twice the response on experience that you do on the on the conventional hotels. And that is because I'm just thinking of hotels to which this would likely apply. Um, for example, uh, one hotels um, in New York, certainly one that that is in. Uh, uh, Brooklyn Bridge is a remarkable property, um, large biophilic wall uh, designed with a lot of features that I think are biophilically, biophilically focused um, and beautiful place just to go and hang out in. You know, uh, I, I'm trying to think of other hotels that would be similar to that, but it, it, it has to come. And I think what I, what makes it likely more successful is that the introduction of biophilic elements is not an afterthought. It's not a check the box on, oh, well, let's put some plants in here because they fill out empty corners or, you know, shelves that are empty. But that is is driven from the very get-go that this approach will substantially increase uh, return visits, um, your higher ADR, average daily rate at the hotel, because you can you can quantify that people like being in those places more. Reminds me of the of the project that we actually collaborated on, which was the redesign of the Weston guest room, and trying to sell this entry sequence um, into uh, into the room. And I've discussed it before on, on the, the podcast. 
about how I sat in a room with a developer uh, and and after going through this great presentation and showing them the photography of sort of the model room and how this was all going to work and how the light would trigger this reflected sense of uh, dappled light in the entryway. And it was going to be this magical experience coming from the corridor. And his question was, well, you know, is this going to give me a $2 ADR lift? You know, uh, and I, I, I shook my head, you know, to myself and thought, gosh, you know, my response kind of sort of was, well, you know, I don't exactly know for sure. But what I do know is that people will spend $35 a night more to look at the ocean than they will to look at a brick wall. And if I use that as my basis for, for measurement here, yeah, I think you can get more than 35 bucks a night rather than your $2 ADR lift. And so it's, but it still remains hard to sell these ideas into the corporate world or, or not. I mean, my perception is it's hard to sell. Is is your experience that selling biophilic design principles is is still difficult? And if it is, why do you think that's so? Um, I think the pandemic has made it uh, exceedingly easier. Mm. Uh, the level of interest has really uh, people have become, you know, for people who work at home, you are in the same space all sure. the time, uh, and people who. Uh, you know, we're working in highly stressful situations like the the doctors and the nurses um, have become, uh, I think people have become much more aware of the environments around mm -hmm. them mm -hmm. through this experience. And um, so we're asking, you know, how do I make this, you know, used to be, uh, you know, I'm here for a few hours, I'll, I'll deal with mm -hmm. it. Uh, but let's do now environments where we are really supported by the by the space around us. You know, it's interesting because as I, I think through this idea of cost and the pushback on cost, right? When you describe this, the the um, the hospital rooms or the sort of the, the uh, elementary school rooms where you're talking about carpet pattern, you're talking about a, a wallpaper freeze that has these fractal patterns on it, uh, shears on the windows that have the appearance of looking through um, uh, shaded uh, trees uh, and, and branches, those are not what I would call huge ticket items. And those are not ex exceptionally costly. Um, and I think one of the, the takeaways here is that the science shows that that you feel better and you perform better and you um, have a general sense of well-being better in rooms that have these principles applied to them. And then I guess that also, if you take that example of the school, it does not have to be hugely expensive to be able to do really simple right. things that still get us to the same end goal of just feeling better and performing better uh, overall. Yeah, I love that high back chair next to yeah. the fireplace. <laughs> Another Frank Lloyd Wright <laughs> element. I want to shift for a moment and um, if I can uh, take us back back into this world of digital. I'm a little fascinated with the world of digital. Uh, in a previous conversation, you were talking about um, studies that were going on that were creating biophilically oriented experiences that were driven through AR and v or VR, virtual reality headsets. Um, can can you share any of the, the the things that are happening in that world now? If I can't leave my Manhattan apartment and get out to Central Park for whatever reason, um, can you put people in these experiences that are VR driven and um, are they effective? Um, surprisingly, they are effective. Um, you know, you're not getting the full experience of, of touch and smell and 
and all of that. But uh, the visual input and so much of the brain processing is related to vision that you can get a strong response. Um, so Jay Yin and a team at the Harvard School of Public Health did a study where they uh, measured a whole bunch of different things, cortisol and blood pressure and heart rate and psychological response and cognitive performance and mood and um, uh, you know, almost every measurement you could imagine. And they, they ran an ex Jay put together an experiment in which uh, in the rotation, you spent five minutes in a windowless classroom, uh, five minutes in a chair uh, outside the classroom, surrounded by plants, uh, screen with biomorphic forms perforated into it and a view to the Charles River. And no surprise, um, much better performance with the biophilic experience than the windowless classroom. They then replicated the experiment in virtual reality with the person sitting in the same chairs and got almost the same response. Now that's in particular, that's interesting because the haptic, what they were touching was the same, what they were smelling was the same, the airflow was the same, the temperature was the same, the acoustics were the same, the visual input was the variable. Mm. And the numbers aren't exactly the same, but they're enough to indicate that um, VR can simulate the response and get you close, if not all the way to the response. And so... For us, what it tells us is that you know we've got projects where we're working on, in some cases, absolutely enormous spaces that are too big to mock up. We don't have the budget or the space to mock them up. And so um, looking at spaces in VR uh, and monitoring the brain response and the, the other responses um, gives us a sense of, is it effective or not? So Jay's uh, got some papers in, in review right now that take it a step further where they've created an artificial room and done a variety of different biophilic experiences in it and use eye tracking to see which ones catch people's attention the most. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So a distant view out a window to a beautiful landscape or a green wall in the space or some plants or you know, different interventions and which interventions re um, a, get your attention, and B, um, get your attention most strongly. And so I'm hoping that that's going to be published sometime in the next few months. It's a really brilliant piece of work. But it does tell us that, that VR can be effective um, when, when I you know, have no sure. other choice. But quite frankly, number one choice is get out of the building, yeah, get into nature. Sure. But in the case that you can't, this idea of digital forest bathing is, is a, I guess we're, what I understand is, and it's, it's a pretty good substitute if you can't get the real thing that because we've come so far also, I think in the, the quality of the visual representations you can get through digital media, um, I think that probably helps us a lot uh, in terms of getting uh, as a proxy to the real thing. If you can't get it, uh, that might be an interesting way to allow people to feel better. Um, it's not surprising to me that the, you know, the worst punishment that we've thought up in human history, I can think of a lot that are pretty bad, but, um, is the idea of a solitary confinement, right? Put people in a completely barren concrete box room with no view to the exterior and don't allow them to talk to people. Those are things that are core to us that will make you crazy, literally, if you don't have those connections. And even, um, this idea that, you know, you can have a small portal looking to the outside, uh, that that tends to save people from going absolutely insane in in detention centers, right? 
So work that uh, was presented at the last Academy for Neuroscience for Architecture actually demonstrated that uh, prolonged exposure in, or prolonged confinement in solitary confinement can lead to brain mm. damage. It actually leads to a shrinking of the hippocampus. And so they're finding in uh, people, formerly incarcerated people who had been in solitary for a, a very extended period of time, because of that uh, shrinking of the hippocampus, um, which doesn't really fully regenerate ever. So they find that those people um, have a huge problem in wayfinding. Wow. They'll get lost in their own apartment. That's buildings. amazing. And um, so, you know, it's probably not a great idea. I mean, well, <laughs> as a, yeah, as a form of t torture or, um, you know, mind control, it reminds me of Nelson Mandela, I think, 27 years in prison the, one of the things that he tried and asked for for almost i think 10 years was to create a garden um and it was no 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 finally you know they they allowed him to create a garden and i find that to me that just is um, very poignant in the context of this conversation that of all the things and he was asking for um, one of the the precious things that he was asking for was the ability to create a garden, a small little green space. And I think they I gave him some like meter by meter square um, area where he could do some some planting of of green things. I want to pause for a second. Serenby, um, are you working on Serenby, or were you down there just because of interest? Um, we have a potential project. Are you allowed to talk about uh, that? Because I, I I was fascinated by looking at not not okay, publicly. So I won't ask the question no. about Serenby. Um, I mean, we've been, you know, Serenity is an extraordinary place. And uh, we, I first encountered it uh, through Ray Anderson of Interface when it was just uh, uh, bed and run as a bed oh, and yeah. breakfast by the Nigrin family. And uh, not long after Steve had his wake up call to he and his, one of his daughters out running and seeing a, an adjoining field being bulldozed and stopped the guy and asked him you know what was going on there what was going to happen and the guy said i don't know i'm assuming they're just going to put a bunch of houses here and steve freaking out and buying up almost a thousand yeah. acres in response um and then asking ray anderson what to do and and so we did a charrette for him 20 years ago. yeah 20 Amazing. years ago on uh what could happen at, at serenby and then he brought in a professor that i knew um from when I was at the University of Colorado, who was then the Dean of Architecture at uh, Texas A&M, Phil Tabb, who'd done work in uh, both sacred architecture with Keith Critchlow, but also on the formation and pattern of formation of English uh, country towns, villages, and hamlets. So as far as Bill Browning is concerned, there are at least 15 different patterns, biophilic patterns that we can introduce into the built environment to help us make us feel better, to increase performance. Um, and it's, it plays across every segment, I think, from urban planning to office design, or even the room you spend most of your time in during the pandemic, which might be your basement. Looking towards the future, what are some of the really interesting, 
applications that you can think of um, of biophilic design in the near and, and maybe distant future in terms of how the this this is science right this is not just you know yeah we all understand we feel good about being out in nature the science now is substantially let me say that again this is the science of, of, of biophilic design is evident. We've been able to do multiple studies that show that simply you, you feel better and you perform better and life is generally better when we're surrounded by um, or, or our built environments are infused with biophilic design principles. What's coming in the near and long term in terms of some of the great things that this will be applied to? What are some of the opportunities that we can use these, these principles in? Well, first, uh, some of the science to or technology to support understanding it. Uh, the increased sensitivity of mobile EEG units uh, allows us to get an even better picture of, of how the brain is responding and how people are responding to spaces. And there's some work that's going to be done uh, by a team at Catholic University uh, looking at comparison of responses to various spaces where what they're doing is doing matched demographics where they pull together a crew of people who are all the same demographics and take them through a series of spatial experiences with these and monitor their what's their brain response to see if they're getting a uniform brain response and um so that's really telling the um the Use of eye tracking to understand you know, what's catching our attention subconsciously um, in a space to help refine uh, spaces as well. Uh, but also then taking all these ideas and, and the experience of biophilia and taking it from the scale of a room or an object to the scale of a city. And so the biophilic cities network is really quite extraordinary and it's growing. Um, uh, it's uh, centered at uh, the University of uh, Virginia and the uh, Landscape and Architecture School there, uh, Tim Beatley. Uh, but there are uh, more than 30 cities around the world who are participating in this, and their work is really looking at different strategies for how these cities are connecting their citizens to experiences of nature. Um, and you know, we see it play out in really interesting ways. So the city of Richmond, Virginia, uh, did a um, an equity map exercise uh, related to the Black Lives Movement protests in the city and, and found that um, uh, one of the things most missing in the neighborhoods that were uh, really suffering the worst sort of long-term effects of uh, racial injustice were they were missing parks. Mm. And so the city is is... Uh, planning to move forward on the creation of five new parks um, with those neighborhoods, the people in those neighborhoods. Um, so making that connection to nature uh, for people who um, are maybe excluded from it in many cases. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I love this subject. And I think the more I've talked with you about these environments, the more I'm attuned to the power of using these principles in design um, and to dispel the idea that it's about simply putting plants on shelves. One of the things I love about these 15 principles of biophilic design is that as, as a designer, as an architect, I can use them in multiple ways that aren't just about gr greening of buildings. 
Um, the book is called Nature Inside, a biophilic design guide co-authored with uh, uh, Katie Ryan. And um, my guest has been Bill Browning, co-founder of Terrapin Bright Green. Uh, also, I have to say that the intro by Thomas Heatherwick uh, was also really, he uh, was excited to have him because he's doing so many really interesting things in this space, um, support what you guys are doing. And I, I've uh, enjoyed the conversation and we'll go now plant another tomato plant in my backyard. This is the first year that we're actually getting to the garden we've so talked about for years um, and growing our own vegetables and, you know, things like that. So, and while that's not entirely biophilic design, I do like sitting on my balcony, looking out over my long sloping backyard towards a body of water, which I now know is about prospect and refuge. So thanks, Bill Browning, for a great conversation. Thanks, David. Happy to connect. Thanks for listening to this episode of Next Level Experience Design. And please remember to subscribe and share with all your friends wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. And don't forget to check out notes and links and other information like transcripts on the Next Level Experience Design webpage at simplecast.com. Also, follow me on social at LinkedIn, Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram for all of the information about upcoming shows and information on our guests who every day are taking it to the next level.